this is Art Fictions. I'm artist Gillian Knipe and welcome to the second episode of this special Culture Exchange series in conjunction with the British Council's international season. Today we meet Nigerian-born, London-based artist Richard Ayodiji Ihide, whose work and selected novel by Amos Tutwola explores customs and mythologies, negotiating around symbols, objects and ghosts. Or perhaps more accurately, in Richard's drawings and paintings, a rich heritage of ancestors whose insights, perspectives and experience play a major role in shaping his present. So while Richard holds his African heritage close to his heart, he admits that his discoveries gained by living in the UK are slowly but surely seeping into his work, challenging his own sense of cultural identity and complicating the account of histories he learnt as a boy. To see his work, check out Richard's Instagram, Pandaguad, spelt P-A-N-D-A-G-W-A-D, as well as the podcast notes, which list his current and upcoming exhibitions, his reading and artistic interests. Let's hear him jumpstart our conversation with a fantastic glimpse of his paternal lineage as we enter the mysterious bush of ghosts. You know what I'm going to start with? I had to do a little bit of research on how to say your name. <laughs> okay, uh, Ayodeji Ihede. Where, where do the names come from? So Ayodeji is my middle name. Uh, oh, okay. It's given to me by my mom. And Ihede is, is our family name, but it's not our family name because my granddad got adopted by someone and got sent to maritime school in... Essex or something like that in like 1930 something as a way to kind of like honor this person he ended up taking the Hide name yeah because my granddad's dad was a chief yeah I read that somewhere then he got trained up you know it's like colonial times you'd have someone he send you to England so he ended up going into like the shipping business and mm. yeah he's had a very interesting history as well and then yeah came back to Nigeria to help his businesses and got into politics and <laughs> so crazy married two wives 12 kids like, yeah yeah, yeah. So, this is so, one of so many 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 relations i understand <laughs> anyway we should probably start in some sort of formal way so richard aodiji ehede yeah that's fine all right yeah. welcome to art fictions You've chosen my life in the bush of ghosts. Thank you very much. I like my cover actually better than your one, but you got two books for one. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's his previous book, isn't it? Yeah, The Palm Wine Drinkers. I actually haven't read that. Yeah, it's really well reviewed. Anyway, so it's written by Amos Tutuola yeah. in 1954, and it begins with a young boy's claim of not understanding bad from good. Along with his older brother, he separated from his mother before she can teach him the difference between the two. So this is how he comes to mistakenly enter the bush of ghosts after he is separated from his brother who is captured by slavers. It is written that the bush of ghosts is so dreadful that no superior earthly person ever entered it. It is on the second side of the world between the heaven and earth and is strictly banned to every earthly person. But due to the boy's ignorance of bad and good, as I said before, he's allowed to stay. So from age 7 to 31, he encounters gold, silver and copper ghosts, a devil reverend and his devil worshippers, a smelling ghost, homeless ghost, river ghosts, armless ghosts and burglar ghosts who steal the place of women's babies. 
all the while he shapeshifts into different animals losing and regaining his sight marrying and leaving his wives he finds his way back to the beginning where he first entered the bush of ghosts only to be captured by slave traders the master turns out to be his brother so he is freed so tell me why richard you chose this book i mean you were going to choose a graphic novel first weren't you yeah i was going to choose a graphic novel but um the graphic novel I would have chosen would have been too too big because it would have been this graphic novel by Alejandro Jodorowsky and Juan Jimenez called Meta Barons. It's about this massive space epic that spans generations. So you have this kind of lineage of, of these kind of space warriors. Each section of the book kind of goes along and follows each member of this particular lineage. So it's a really interesting in terms of like generational history and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, you'd be attracted to a book like that but um too many pages right? yeah too many pages and obviously i don't want to put you through, through that i don't want to go uh, through that either but yeah i think my, my life in the bush of ghosts you know similar kind of ideas and for me it's more it's touching more upon this kind of like hero's journey or this you know young child in this unknown landscape and having to navigate all these different facets of it and they become almost kind of metaphorical allegorical yeah, so it's been it's been a really interesting book for me that I keep kind of going back to. I'm kind of rereading it again because it's something I feel like every time you read it, it changes, you know, because of how uh, almost uh, abstract the world is, this bush of ghosts that he goes into. You can almost kind of form new meanings from things each time you read it. The first time I read it, I was more interested in the kind of fantastical kind of like non-physical aspect of it of how these kind of world of the ghosts operated but then now i'm reading it again and him kind of using these more contemporary colonial ideas like with the church and law system so i'm reading it with a slightly different viewpoint now in terms of okay this is somebody who's about to be captured and be sent into slavery and then ends up being captured at the end again so yeah and then he also goes through these different stages of being subjugated by these different ghosts in various forms either being turned into an animal so in some ways they can also become metaphors for slavery in a sense of how these different ghosts subjugate them in different ways it's interesting how it has so many ways you can kind of view the story also on a kind of psychological level of how he's maybe repurposing some of these more mythological ideas or folktale ideas and bringing them into a more kind of contemporary sense because we're thinking Nigeria 1954 my dad was born in 56 Nigeria gets its independence in 1960 so you know this is like peak colonial period and I can imagine that in 1954 that would have been around the time where Nigerians are starting to organize themselves and request for independence from the British so it was written at quite an interesting time actually and, and probably quite shocking just coming back to this idea of the superhero, it is like he's abandoned, essentially. Mm. He's separated from his mother, he's separated from his family, he's separated from customs mm. and from really knowing and learning through his mother about what is good and what is bad. And so he goes into, let's call it some sort of purgatory, and he has to learn from his instincts, you know, how to decide between people. And straight away, he escapes the slavers mm. only to face these gold, silver, copper ghosts, <laughs> where he has to choose which one he's going to be a slave for. Mm. You know, it's yeah, absolutely yeah. horrible. 
and over time he learns the language of the dead he yeah. learns the customs mm. of the dead and he learns to blend in with the dead it's really quite awful but it's a survival thing to mm. the point where in the end he's got this juju magic that he mm. uses to escape so yeah. he's become quite a powerful mm. character even now as we're having this conversation i'm thinking of the first time i came to england at like 14 15 and having to navigate this new space. I've never been abroad in my lifetime. And kind of my dad like, okay, you guys should go live with your mom because, you know, I have all these issues. So going to England would be a better position for you guys because my mom was a British citizen, so we got citizenship through her. I say to people, my first encounter with being a black person is like coming to England because, you know, in Nigeria, you're either Yoruba or you're Ibo or whatever tribe you're from. So, you know, coming to England and being like, okay, I guess I'm a black person. In Nigeria, I understood, okay, yeah, there is this idea of this thing, racism, but then I didn't understand the depths of how that kind of encompassed how Africans are viewed and all these things. And in England, that's when I start to kind of really recognize and see like, oh, wow, this is a really big issue and something that, yeah, you know, in terms of even colonial history, because we learn colonial history in Nigeria, but then it's told from a point of like, you know, the English came and they civilized us and they made Nigeria better. And you almost kind of learn the opposite when you come to England. So for me, they're kind of parallels between my kind of just life journey and him going into this bush of ghosts. And obviously not to the point of me but being like subjugated by people, but, you know, in terms of encountering these different types of people and, you know, trying to gauge and understand all kinds of people. Whereas before I'd mostly see Nigerians, you'd maybe see the odd foreigner here and there in Lagos. But, you know, here you're encountering so many different cultures, many different types of people. And you, when you're that age... You're such an alien to your own body mm, and your yeah. own self and your own identity. So it's a really freaky age to mm. have moved. I mean, what was it like in terms of feeling, you know, alien or foreigner? I certainly felt like that when I moved here and I'm white and English is my first language. <laughs> so, and I'm still getting used to so yeah. many things about the country. <laughs> it was crazy. One of my earliest experiences, I remember I was going to college and on the train. And I, you know, saw this older white man sitting in the carriage. And I said, Oh, you know, I'll go sit next to him. But then he grabs his bag and just <laughs> holds onto his bag. And then I was like, Why is he acting like that? But then I couldn't really understand the reason why he would do that. Because I'm just like, Oh, I'm just like a young kid. So, you know, there's, I'm not going to do anything. But then but I remember going back home and asking my mama. She was like, Yeah, like, obviously, you know, you just have to be careful. You know, people are like that. This this is England and I know she didn't want to say like oh, yeah people are racist or racism but I could understand what she was saying like we're different and people might not be you know inclined to be that friendly to you or whatever so it's like little moments like that where you start to recognize okay I am viewed differently or people might see me differently or like walking into certain spaces and feeling like you shouldn't be there but then I guess you know it's the diaspora kind of experience you start to learn to assimilate as the young boy starts to assimilate into the bush of ghosts and learns the language and learns the customs and traditions. He has this sort of physical exposure not only to this environment, but also the meticulous detail of skin. Yeah. You know, his skin is burnt, it's torn. There's these ghosts that rub his skin and their hands are like sandpaper. Yeah, he's almost kind of used as a, a sacrifice. They turn him into this kind of massive effigy, then his head swells up. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah, to the size of an elephant. <laughs> Bash his head. Yeah, then he bashes head. Oh so it's. <laughs> he always seems to be on the verge of being killed. You know, yeah, he's buried yeah. alive. He's beaten repeatedly with mm. clubs. 
It's kind of preempted in a way right at the beginning of the novel where the boy is recalling or, or describing where he lives, saying there were many kinds of African wars and some of them are as follows. Mm. General wars, tribal wars, burglary wars and the slave wars, which were very common in every town and village. These slave wars were causing dead luck to both old and young of those days because obviously people mm. were taken off yeah. to other countries and nobody knew what happened to them and mm. they either worked yeah. or they were killed yeah. and nobody knew that. And so this awful violence just continues mm. at every level through his culture. Yeah. And he is enslaved in the beginning in different mm. ways, yeah. not just through those different ghosts, but also at some point he's turned into a horse in the yeah. beginning. Yeah, he's turned into a horse, he's then he's turned into a cow. And he's used day and night. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he's, he's lent out to mm. different Yeah, different ghosts. People. I keep saying people, you're right, ghosts. <laughs> And the writing is really beautiful. He can't eat the leaves that they give him because he's not really a horse. And then through some circumstance, he gets turned into a cow. Yeah. So he goes and lives with the cows, but he can't really eat the grass because he's not. not actually a cow. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like throughout the story, he's on the edge of death. In many ways, he becomes a yeah. ghost himself because almost, you know, he's not eating, he's not able to drink. So he's almost dead in, in a sense. So it's really interesting how Tutorla is making these parallels of this physical body going into this kind of non-physical ethereal space that's between heaven and earth. And there's a lot of metamorphoses throughout the whole story. There's constant, constant, constant transformations from one state to another. And I guess, you know, even kind of thinking, Tutola describes these different types of wars within Nigeria at the time. And I can imagine these are things he might have seen growing up himself because he was a lot older when he'd written this book. So, you know, I'm thinking Nigerian in, in the 30s, early 1920s, this is coming off the back of, you know, things like the big Great Benin Expedition and all that kind of stuff and all these different colonial wars. So, and then I can imagine through oral history, he's also getting accounts of some of these things that would have happened from his parents, family members. So it's interesting how he starts to infuse all of those ideas into the book in almost these different villages because some of the ghosts like the burglar ghosts supply goods to the other ghosts because they steal earthly stuff from the mothers and then you have the homeless ghosts who live in a homeless town and then smelling ghosts which are all smelling and for me in a way that's also an account of kind of tribalism in Africa maybe okay these different towns or these different tribes having the contention with each other or maybe they have certain relationships with each other yeah he's using the idea of these ghosts in these towns to maybe talk about some of his experiences in Nigeria at the time. So do you want to explain a little bit more about that tribal metaphor? Because there's lots of different languages in Nigeria, lots mm. of different cultures. And you come from a particular culture that's known for their artisans, is that right? Yeah, so my family, so we're from Sabongida Ora, which is like a town in Edo State. My granddad would tell me about like being in bronzes when I was a kid and then obviously coming to England. I'm like, oh, wow, okay. These being in bronzes are seen as like these crazy, interesting artifacts here in Europe. For me, it was just, oh, yeah, you know, being in bronzes, that's kind of part of family history and lineage. And because my great granddad was like a chief and part of the royal family in Sabongida Ora, so there's this connection to that aspect of it. And my granddad would tell me about the Benin Empire. And so it was interesting for me to find out later, oh, okay, you know, the Benin bronzes. I mean, even in how they were using metals at the time, which you didn't really find in many other places. And the aesthetic quality of some of these bronzes and how developed they were. And then, I guess, lineage-wise, it makes sense for me to go into the arts because of where I'm from. 
Yeah, because my understanding is the Benin Empire was destroyed by the British yeah. um, in the late 1800s. So the author would have been much closer to that time. That yeah. would have been a really potent part of his family history. Yeah. And as recently as the mid-1970s, actually, mm. the Nigerian government asked the British Museum, hey, you know that stuff you stole? <laughs> can you return? Do you mind? Can we borrow it? <laughs> yeah. To which they said no. Yeah. It's been an ongoing conversation yeah. for like decades now. It's been for a long time. And, and you know, that it's, it's really interesting because of the, that expedition that happened, you know, many of these bronzes go to many other countries. You know, they go to France, they go to Germany, they go to so many places places so it's interesting when we think of the legacy of African art in terms of things like modernism because you have people like Picasso or Giacometti going to all these museums and seeing like oh you know Africans are doing things in a slightly different way maybe we should step away from realism and this pursuit of you know idealistic human perfection and move into this maybe more symbolic kind of representation of the human body and the figure maybe if Europeans didn't see these artifacts they'd still be trying to make hyper-realistic images and pure perspective you look at people like Giotto pioneering ideas around perspective and all that kind of stuff and so it's very very interesting when you think about you know off the back of something like that expedition how that then transports itself comes into Europe and then galvanizes you know a whole new generation of artists to develop cubism modernism abstraction all these things because I think that's something that within the arts isn't really spoken about because I think a large part of contemporary art or modernism as we know today owes a big debt to Africa you know and I think that's a conversation that needs to happen a bit more and (laughs) maybe they they should return these artifacts you know I think it's an interesting one because I love going to the British Museum and I could see these things there you know but then for me it's it's a double-edged thing because I feel like yes they should return them but then for people who are here especially like diaspora like Nigerians who are here in this country Mm. you won't be able to see that until you go back home so you know it makes sense yes they should return them or have some sort of exchange program okay it's in Nigeria for 10 years and then it comes back to Europe you know just like they do with museum collections all the time going back to this idea of like tribalism in uh Africa you have so many different tribes you have over 50 languages in Nigeria alone but then through colonialism you just mishmash everybody everybody in together and you call it Nigeria which is quite funny because that was named by uh Henry Lugard Lord Lugard who's this colonial region sent by the British to oversee that region of West Africa his girlfriend she comes up with the name Nigeria oh really you I know. had no idea it's a really what's she talking about <laughs> it's a really kind of like derogatory term you know n-word area I know there's been like petitions in Nigeria for people who've said like we should change that name that we shouldn't be referring to ourselves as Nigerians because that's a really derogatory term in terms of referring to people in that region so if we talk about tribalism in in Africa or in Nigeria in general you know you're putting all these different tribes who have different customs different traditions together and that's what led to things like the Biafra war the north and south divide within Nigeria so even today you know you still have recently I've seen it and people in the kind of Igbo region the Biafra they want to separate from Nigeria to become their own state, their own country. Still, even till today, it's still causing many issues because, you know, these people have been put together by force and, you know, labelled as this. Because obviously, during the colonial rush, you have France, England, the UK, all these countries dividing up Africa and saying, this is my section, that's my section. That then displaces so many people and causes so much conflict in terms of identity, tradition. Even now, we still see the effects of colonialism. Well, 
it hasn't really been that long. My dad was born in 56. We got our independence in 1960. My dad's still alive. So. But I'm only just like second generation out of Nigeria having its independence. And, you know, it's not a no, long time. No, it's absolutely nothing. Um, I mean, we can see that in the Middle East. We can see that with the Irish. Um, um, and yet, I don't know, in a, in a weird way, it's a bit like the British Museum. I love the British Museum. It's one of my favourite places. Mm. It really ruptures this idea of there being one way of thinking, one yeah. way of being, one cultural practice. And I love London. I love yeah. living in London, the mel- melting pot of all these different cultures. Mm. And you think, you know, without colonialism, you probably wouldn't have had that. But, mm. my God, what a horrible price yeah it's, it's it's yeah it's interesting i feel like even with the british museum i do have problems with their curation i think it could be curated a lot better because i feel like yes they have all these different sections of cultures but with the kind of work i'm making where i'm looking at commonalities between cultures in terms of okay mm. you find archetypal images in mesoamerica and you find the similar archetypal images in europe in asia and africa so that kind of connection between things because i feel even with the way the museum's curated things still feel quite separate and there's hierarchies i mean africa is in the basement europe's upstairs and then Egypt is separated from Africa intentionally, which I find very problematic because there's this kind of almost whitewashing of Egypt, specifically that region. It's like, oh, you know, it's not really the same as Western Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, as they call it. While I was at the drawing school, uh, mm. I was doing a British Museum course. You know, I did it two terms in a row because I just enjoyed going to the British Museum. Personal, I did read uh, that about you. That's a dedication for you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I because, you know, it, it goes, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an archaeologist. So oh, okay. <laughs> I feel yeah. like... Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of doing a form of visual archaeology by kind of looking at these ancient artifacts, going to places like the British Museum, uh, trying to understand these things. But I'd love to do a residency at the British Museum and maybe curate a show because there's certain kind of attractions that bring in that footfall for them. So the collection doesn't really change that much because I've had tutors at a drawing school where I've had conversations with, and they, yeah, these rooms have been the same since the eighties. If they want to start to address some of that legacy of like, okay, well, how these things were got in, or maybe even creating that connection between things, maybe they should give me a residency and I could go in there Absolutely. and help them just curate. Right, right place, right sounds <laughs> of things. But also, yeah. I, I never made that connection about Egypt, so I feel a bit guilty about that, but that's what these <laughs> conversations are for. Yeah. In fact, I came across a philosopher quite recently, he's still alive, Simon Blackburn, and he's mm. talking about real philosophy being in discussion and Mm. not in books and I think these sort of conversations and the conversations that you have with Dexter on your own podcast and we'll talk about that in a moment They are this sort of breaking up of this, you know, narrow narratives that have one way of looking at things. So, for instance, I understand, how do you say that Yoruba people? Yeah, Yoruba. Yeah, Yeah. Yoruba people did come from the Nile region, didn't they? They come from Egypt. (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting, I feel like, because even with the Yoruba, they talk about accounts of them coming down from north into West Africa. Yeah. And even when you look at certain symbols, you can see how some of these visual systems trickle down from Egypt into okay. different parts of okay. West Africa, even with the Akan people in Ghana as well. You find similar symbols. Maybe the British Museum should look into that and make those connections because I find it ridiculous that we have all these Egyptian artifacts 
at the ground floor are lauded and like, oh, they're amazing. And then next to the Sumerian artifacts, but then you have the Africa section in the basement, almost kind of hidden away. Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with it. I love going there, but then I also know how problematic it is as well. Yeah, like I said, if they give me if they if they give me a residency, I can help them out. You know, make some rearrangements <laughs> by the sounds of things. Coming back to the book, there's something that I didn't understand, which was that I was trying to read it like Aesop's fables and stuff like that, where mm. there was a clear message for each thing that happened. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this, I was looking for. What's the reason why he turned into a cow? Why mm. specifically a yeah, cow, etc.? Yeah. And I had to let go of that and yeah. just go with the flow. <laughs> yeah. Was that your experience? Of yeah, that was my, yeah, definitely. When I was a kid, I used to get told these different kind of folk tales by my granddad. And we used to have this show in Nigeria. It was called Tales by Moonlight. You have different folk tales. And, and a lot of the times they wouldn't really have a kind of clear cut, good and bad. Sometimes they did, you know, you'd have themes like that. Okay, if you do this, or if you don't treat your neighbor right. But I feel like the book almost becomes quite Jungian for me because, you know, when we're looking at these ideas of the animal, the animus, you know, psychology itself, it is contentious. There is no clear cut line of, okay, this is good, this is bad. As the child is kind of constantly reevaluating, okay, he goes to the burglar ghosts. The burglar ghosts, they bring him into the home and they treat him nice, they give him food, but then he then finds out they're getting all these riches from being in the wombs of women and <laughs> stealing all their resources coming back to the burglar town and then selling it off so there's this constant kind of re-evaluation of what good and bad is and i think that's kind of what tutorial is almost trying to tell us with this book that there aren't necessarily clear-cut lines because also he could have written this book in yoruba right but then he's also using the language of, of the colonizer to write this book yeah, because using... it's not a translation. No. He's written it in English. He's written yeah. it in English, you know. So it's re really interesting that he then decides to use English as a vehicle. Yeah, and he brings in little systems like the television and all that kind of stuff. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's an interesting... Te television ghost. Yeah, a television ghost with television hands, mm. <laughs> a television head. The lines are blurred, you know, because even when we talk about the, the slave wars and tribal wars, yes, okay, yes, you had colonialism, but then he also had all these other wars behind that, you know, where you'd have other... Nigerians and Africans fighting each other so there aren't clear-cut lines in the book I mean there, there are points where it's like okay yes these ghosts when he goes to the, the church when he with, gets married the first yeah when he gets time, married and, and literally a baptism of fire <laughs> a baptism of fire, fire. <laughs> yeah. you know and then you have uh, the point in the book where he talks about mm. Mr. Evil's best man and he's been stuck on earth because he was so bad they sent him away he from, got kicked out of hell he got kicked out That's of hell and, <laughs> put in the bush of ghosts and he's like yeah. evil walking, evil yeah. joking, evil laughing. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. And he also starts with pretty basic ideas that we've talked about already, mm. but then it gets more and more sophisticated as he ages. Yeah. Because he's in the bush of ghosts for what is it, twenty four years? Yeah, twenty four years. And he, by this time he's gone through two marriages. <laughs> he's got a kid. <laughs> <laughs> So by the end, this is where Christianity comes yeah. into play, doesn't it? Because his cousins died mm. yeah. and he's started this Christian town. Mm. Yeah. And so he's saying to the boy, who never is named. Yeah, he's never named, yeah. So he meets his cousin and his cousin's very welcoming and he trains him, educates him in all these ghostly ways. 
And then says, you know, stay here with us mm. until you're actually dead. Yeah. And then you can be an official ghost yeah. in the bush of ghosts. <laughs> and it's quite a tricky thing, isn't it? Mm. Because he is in a really good position there. He's really well looked after. Yeah. What did you think of the idea that he ends up in this Christian town? I was just thinking about when we were talking about this idea of the boy being nameless. I feel like the fact that a boy is nameless really puts you inside of him as the protagonist. You become the protagonist as you're reading. It makes me think of things like video games because a lot of the times in video games you create a character or you have a nameless protagonist that you have to name because you you know that's a vehicle for you to experience this world. So it's really interesting what he's doing in terms of having this nameless protagonist is quite forward thinking. But then, yeah, I feel like, yeah, it's this kind of contention between traditional beliefs and Christianity. And I've seen that in my family personally, you know, my grandma, she'd say things like, oh, don't whistle at night because you call spirits and stuff like that. But then she'd be like, oh, you don't just talk about church or Jesus. Like, we need to go to church on Sunday. So I think even now, you know, 60 years on, people still trying to formulate this new identity of okay we've been affected by these things it's now a part of who we are how do we start to navigate and find a new identity almost in a way because a lot of what Tutola would be saying juju and all these different things would have been demonized by the church you know but then you still have Africans or Nigerians holding on to that legacy and maybe people are blending and we see that in many different places even diaspora wise if you go to uh, places like Cuba where they have Ifa gods from like the Ifa pantheon like the Yoruba pantheon because you had a lot of West Africans from Nigeria go to places like Cuba so you have like the Lukumi system which is this uh, spiritual system based on using Ifa gods and goddesses and pairing them with certain saints. Oh, wow, so, yeah. So because they, they went to Cuba a lot earlier than coming to the UK. Yeah. It was a first wave, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So you have like places like Cuba, Brazil. So you oh, find, Brazil, so which yeah, is really yeah. interesting, you find a lot of combining belief systems together to create this new system. And I feel like with Tutuola's book, he's combining these two systems together to create a new way of looking at things or a new language in a sense. That would actually be a perfect time to manoeuvre towards your work. But I did want to ask just quickly, what did you think of the end? Just to say, so he gets out of the bush of ghosts through all sorts of manipulations and mm. trickery and all that sort of stuff. And then he says which is so heartbreaking because he's caught straight away yeah. and enslaved and he says this is a great pity that I was lost in the bush of ghosts for 24 years with punishments and when I came out of it I am caught and sold again as a slave and now a rich man buys me and he is going to kill me for his god Anyway, the, the rich man turns out to be his brother. But it's like life is just happening to you mm. and you have no control over control, anything. Yeah, yeah. And okay, he gets to survive because the rich man ends up being his brother. But still, it's a pretty shitty system. And then in the end of it, he has these dreams of the celebration of the secret society of ghosts, which happens once a century. And then he says the last line of the book, spoiler, is this is what hatred did. And I did, couldn't understand what he meant by that line. What did you mean? And, and for me, it's interesting because I guess even in the beginning where he talks about, you know, the hatred of his stepmother, of not informing him and his brother. Yeah, that's true. The slavers were coming. Really? Sorry, I'm just going to jump in here and say that what we're talking about here is that there are three wives and two of the wives only have daughters. Yeah. And... The boy, his mother has two sons, sons so yeah. she she is let's say valued more, yeah, more, and she's off at the marketplace trading when the slavers come yeah. in, and 
the other two wives escape and leave the boys to their own devices. Yeah. Because there's this whole contention because, you know, this is a thing that happens. Like, my granddad had two wives, 12 kids. So even just in my own family history, from the first line of the book, I'm like, yeah, I definitely know what he's talking about. In terms of, okay, yes, there will be hierarchies. It's kind of crazy because in Nigeria, you're allowed to have as many wives as you want. My grandma lived in the main house with my grandfather. And then his other wife lived behind the house with her children. They didn't feel like they were as important as my grandmother's kids and even when my granddad died, it was a big thing because the will comes in and land and all these things. So there's a lot of contention. So I can understand how this idea of where he talks about hatred and how that propagates it. So it's a weird one because you do have families where, okay, that system might work, but it's not always the case. It's also surely about laws coming in in terms of ownership and land ownership. Yeah. And that's where you get this huge divide, for instance, mm. between genders. Yeah. The man is the head of the household and he controls everything and the finances and this is what's done, makes the major decisions and all that kind of stuff. So even in terms of agency for women and what they're allowed to do and how valid or important they are if you don't have a son then yeah so it's interesting because i think to to Allah, maybe that's something he might have also experienced himself but it's interesting in terms of the journey yeah i mean it is quite a kind of sad thing in terms of yeah this is what hatred has done and but then i also think you know this for me where it comes into that more kind of Jungian thing of like you know you're always constantly kind of maybe battling against something or you have this thing crop up and arise and joseph campbell talks about the hero's journey and how throughout the hero's journey you go through all these different trials and tribulations who's joseph campbell? Uh, so joseph campbell is a he's a writer kind of like a philosopher and he was writing okay. a lot of books based on mythology um he's got a really famous book called hero with a thousand faces where he looks at the hero myth in different cultures and finds parallels between them it's got a series on netflix i think called the power of myth which is really good Um, so so yeah he's someone who kind of talks about this idea of the hero's journey quite a lot because he was also kind of like a student of carl jung and he took those ideas into a focus on mythology and how we can use myths to enhance our lives who'd have thought when your dad bought you those comic books that this is <laughs> the, the, the path that he would set up for you yeah i know <laughs> so i want to move on to your work what becomes quite apparent in the book is this very unclear distinguishing between alive and dead. I mean, at one point, he says at the very beginning, the ghosts were so old and weary that it is hard to believe they were actually living creatures. Mm. And they're not living because they're dead. Like, it's an yeah. oxymoron. I think we get the same sense in your work, not necessarily alive and dead, but real and unreal, I mm. suppose. Yeah. And just to say that you create figurative drawing works... You're primarily a draftsman and you work in watercolour and oil centred around mythology, customs, family, heritage and scenic framings of life in the mind. Mm. And I didn't read that about you, this life in the mind, but I feel that that's very much where the work is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, a lot of the work is coming kind of from the abstract psychological space in the mind, this space between heaven and earth, like, you know, like Mm. he says in the book, Mm. where this non-physical space... I've used this term like future past before in terms of, okay, maybe the work existing in this potential future, but then also referencing the ancient past as well. So it's interesting for me, the work does exist in this quite abstract space. There is reference to the physical world, but then, you know, a lot of it is still kind of intangible 
so yeah, it's in a way kind of like the bush of ghosts, you know, you go in there, so <laughs> how do I say it? You can make out certain things, but things are still fleeting. Yeah, yeah. I find them really liquid. Yeah. I think there's this sort of liquidity and convergence, and that's what I mean by this mind, you know, where mm. the mind and body yeah. converge. And you've got all these objects which look like they've got liquid surfaces and people who look like they've got liquid skin. So there's mm. this shape-shifting potential yeah. that goes on. In fact, I do think a lot of... I don't know if you've ever seen Spirited Away. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. so... No face who is solid and then he becomes liquid, liquid and, he, yeah. and then he he is a character within a mm. character and yeah. so a character comes out of no face. Yeah. You don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. And there's a bit like that in your work and mm. I'm sitting here in your studio and I'm looking at these two amazing pieces of work on the wall where I can see that you've got these sculptures depicted there's a ram's head or something mm. and then a little sculptural like a character dwarf effigy yeah and then what i think of as a person maybe dreaming maybe dreaming about these things but they're all depicted in their surfaces in such a similar way that they all feel equal to me yeah, I think, yeah, because for me, the figure is not necessarily like a figure in terms of, okay, I'm drawing an actual person. The figure is more like symbolic or a representation of, you know, an aspect of my mind or my psyche. So, yeah, in terms of the clear-cut distinction, because, you know, when you try and look in your mind's eye, you know, you get images popping in and out. Things aren't necessarily clearly defined. So I think that quality of them being liquid and also kind of like, you know, in my life in the Bush of Ghosts, where the boy is going through this constant metamorphosis. You know, like you were saying as well, the quality of the figures also feeling like they might change or they might shift or they might transform themselves at any time. And even when we look at ourselves through life, when you're 10, you're a different individual to when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50. And this goes back to ideas of people like Carl Jung or Joseph Campbell, where we all go through our own individual journey of metamorphoses and change through life. And also I'm a water sign as well, so it kind of makes, oh, no <laughs> makes sense for me to use water in that way yeah. with watercolours. So even for the viewer, it allows the viewer to also project onto the figures in terms of how they might try and piece them together because when i draw with okay maybe pen and ink things slightly change and maybe things are defined in a certain way but with watercolors in terms of the engagement with the viewer and how i can allow the viewer to kind of also project and interact and kind of put their own kind of inclinations or understandings on the figure it, it, it opens the work up a bit more you know and you have these borders around them i'm just realizing now i suppose almost like a comic book so i do get the sense that they're sort of scenes of a bigger story mm. and do you think of them as stories i mean there's there's something about some of them that feel very staged for instance yeah. and i'm thinking in particular and i'm going to say this wrong of Awan. Yeah, Sarah, yeah. Uh, Sarah. Which, uh, the translation would be the actors? Yeah, even like the, the artist. Um, the so, artist, okay. So did that... That was quite, yeah, it, that is quite like a stage thing because I was thinking about this idea of some sort of like atelier or studio of people making things, yeah. creating these different symbols or systems or visual effigies that maybe people could access. But I feel like, yeah, definitely, I feel all the works are part of this kind of idea of me trying to create my own personal microcosm as a reflection of the larger macrocosm people could delve into and, yeah, interact with. So, yeah, definitely, in my head, they are part of this bigger narrative that I'm still formulating as to what it is how clearly defined it is but um, yeah you'll probably definitely. work that out you'll probably work everything out by the time you're on your deathbed so, <laughs> yeah pretty you know, much take, take your time <laughs>
So this microcosm, this bigger sort of cosmos that mm. you are referring to, you know, you're a bit of a sci-fi geek. Yeah, yeah, I love, you know, <laughs> I love sci-fi and a lot of sci-fi themes and yeah, physics. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really interested in this idea of like multiverses because maybe this is me being a bit crazy, but in some ways maybe the work I'm making is interfacing with these alternate realities or these multiversal spaces because in physics they talk about this idea of, you know, we have all these different realities stacked up against each other in these different universes. So you have different versions of the reality we live in today. So when you look into things like visionary experiences or psychics or kind of like shamanistic systems they talk about interfacing all these alternate spaces these non-physical spaces so in a way i guess carl jung talks about this idea of artists being able to pull from the collective unconscious and kind of filtering down all these uh, abstract or ethereal things into a physical form for us to be able to engage with and understand that's why he talks about this idea of archetypes persisting over decades because they are this kind of universal thing that can exist between different time periods and so in some ways I feel like yeah the work is kind of doing that and me trying to make the intangible tangible in some form in doing that you also get that mix up for instance contemplating with effigies you Mm. get a character and masks so masks depict characters Mm. and I don't know about that one but in in other works of yours you get shadows of characters or characters that look like they're not entirely human but everything feels on the same level and the same amount of aliveness or Mm. not aliveness in fact, it was in your, you do a podcast called The Compendium Podcast, and I've only just started it, <laughs> with Dexter Orsak. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in the episode I was listening to, it really, really is a good podcast. I do recommend it. Second to mine, obviously. <laughs> but in that, he's talking about drawing mm. and sort of coming back to basics with your practice. And the idea of looking at something from the outside and imagining the inside. And when he's talking about it and when you're talking about it with him, it did make me think a lot about drawing and a lot Mm. about drawing and its connection to sculpture, which you've delved into. But also, I mean, there are differences, obviously, but Mm. almost there's no difference in a way between that sort of inquisition into the inside of something yeah be that a mask or a sculpture Mm. or a person yeah yeah definitely i think yeah because for me the the body itself becomes another symbol another visual device to kind of play with when i was at the drawing school when you go to places like the national gallery you see these hierarchies between how maybe the body might be described compared to other elements in the picture and the importance is on the figure for me it's interesting because i'm also you know interested in this idea of okay us looking at some of these older visual motifs and the importance of them and how these symbols persist so kind of dispelling some of these hierarchies through the painting kind of brings everything at the same level you know looking at that commonality things start to work on similar levels okay you know there are common elements between this and between that and the body itself becomes its own kind of collection of motifs and symbols the heart the lungs you know in ancient greece they'd make a lot of effigies based around different parts of the body so you'd have all these different cults where they'd make okay effigy of the hand and it has all these this symbols or an effigy of uh, of the heart and that would be associated with healing and all these different kinds of things yeah i'm interested in things like that where the body itself or the figure itself becomes a motif and it's almost kind of like i'm sculpting the figure again on you know if i'm looking at a sculpture and then i put a figure in it they all kind of interact together in this similar 
kind of fashion and they become part of this kind of rotating thing where okay the little dwarf effigy holding up the figure there's a relationship between them because I don't want the objects to just be like a memento mori you know I don't want it to be like okay it's just me populating the image with objects but the objects and the figure and everything they're all kind of working in tandem yeah absolutely and it's more than just the figures and the objects it's it's things like the rock (laughs) this is much detail with the rock and Mm. the landscape and there are similarities between the way a mountain might be depicted and Mm. the character's skin yeah I mean, that's the part of the work to me that also connects with your, or perhaps connects with, or I'm imagining connects with your original training in textiles, mm, you know, yeah, that well. every surface is patterned. Yeah, definitely. I've, I'm yeah. a big pattern fan, so. <laughs> yeah, I feel, yeah, definitely, because when I did my textiles degree, I was working on things that more like tapestries, uh, printed textiles, various cultures, but I was in really thinking about things in terms of okay like figuration i wasn't thinking like a fine artist you know but it was then going to the drawing school and almost kind of reinventing my practice and i started painting with watercolors i realized because i specialized in print design so i was working with a lot of screen printing so you're working with several layers building up an image and then i realized oh how i use watercolors is quite similar to how you would screen print an image where you work with a lighter layer and then you start to build things up so that kind of methodology or the thinking with textiles is definitely in the way I paint in terms of, okay, working with a medium like watercolours and working from this really light layer or even using like the white of the paper and thinking about colour, pattern. A lot of textile kind of sensibilities are in the paintings themselves. And even how I draw sometimes, I realise I work in almost kind of like patterns, especially when I draw with pen and ink because I'm really into like almost working in a quite traditional way like you know cross hatching and that becomes a little pattern itself I don't really think about my textiles practice but then I feel like it's all just kind of transformed itself into relating to what I'm doing now fine art now eventually I would like to go back to doing more textile stuff but yeah we'll see how it goes and what took you to textiles in the first place? Because where I live, I'm quite near a market that mm. sells lots and lots of African textiles. Mm. And so I've ended up picking up a lot of them just out of slightly being starved for colour <laughs> <laughs> living in this country because all the colours are very subdued. Yeah. So is that something from your cultural history? Or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I remember like being a young kid. So you get what is called Iran Buba. A gown. A gown. Yeah. You kind of like a gown. Mm-hmm. Like, so you get a long sleeve shirt, you get trousers, and you sometimes mm-hmm. get a little cap. Um, I never used to like wearing the hats because I just thought they were cheesy. But um, <laughs> I remember being a young kid and my mom or my grandma would buy like fabric and they'd be like, oh, okay, you know, we're going to make a Iran Buba for you because you have to wear this. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's part of our history and tradition. Sorry, what's it called? Iran and Buba. Okay. Yeah. Me and my brother, we'd have those sewn for us. And then when I came to England I ended up doing my A-levels and then did textiles and I found that I had a really kind of affinity with textiles just natural affinity I remember my textiles shoot just like oh you know like maybe you should do textiles because I was doing a lot of stuff in college with like batik like dyeing fabric and all that and obviously when you look at Nigeria have like the history of like dye pits and all that stuff Mm -hmm. in the north for me this goes back to this idea of almost kind of like genetic or ancestral kind of information for me there were certain inclinations for certain types of art forms or process which just came naturally now as I've gotten older I'm realizing okay yeah it makes sense that I would want to make work in this way because of where I'm from and so there's a really interesting connection 
lineage wise when i was in csm i was really interested in printing so i was working on like four meter two meter length tapestries for my final major projects central st martin's yeah central st martin's so i was really interested in this idea of producing these massive textiles and textiles functioning like a visual motifs or narratives rather than just being for decoration because what i found when i was at my course was like, okay yeah we're making textiles for home textiles for fashion it was always in the service of something else but I wanted the textiles itself to become a visual kind of thing we could look at and engage with so I was really interested in that idea but then you know textile production is so expensive because I was working with linen so I got a sponsorship in my final year from the Cloth Workers Foundation Uh, so I got to go to Belgium and go to linen factories and you know see how linen was produced went to Flax Farm so they gave me loads of linen to print and also when you look at the history of linen like linen sacks and all that kind of stuff so I was really interested in the history of like linen but then graduating you don't have any of those resources I'm just working in retail and I'm like okay how can I make this two meter length piece that I really want to make it forced me to kind of reinvent my practice and also because I was really interested in things like mythology and some of these visual systems motifs and archetypes because I read the book Man and His Symbols by Carl Jung and his students Mm -hmm. kind of talking about symbols throughout history in relation to the psyche and in relation to the arts so I wrote about semiotics for my dissertation at CSM but then I remember doing that on a textile course my tutors were a bit like you should have just gone and done fine art oh no way oh my gosh (laughs) the way I was thinking about textiles was quite different from what what I was being taught on the course Mm -hmm. so I was running into a lot of problems after graduating was my way of you know I need to find a medium or processes that would help me make the kind of things I wanted to make and yeah like I said due to like financial limitations I wasn't able to make textiles in the way I wanted to which led me to going to the drawing school and becoming more of a fine artist now but you know like I said all those sensibilities like especially in terms of how I use color all of that is from textiles I'd create one screen for the for different colors so I'd do okay maybe one screen for the red and then when I print the red on top of the orange it would turn you know a different color i print mm-hmm. the the blue on top of this so yeah in terms of like color sense that's really come from textiles because i read joseph alba's interaction of color that's in, a beautiful book yeah i love that book so much in my first year actually first year of doing textiles and i read it again in my second year and ever since reading that book it just changed how i saw color especially in terms of how colors can affect each other so even that when i'm painting with yeah, watercolors, yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of these interactions and color temperature and all these kinds of things. So that came, you know, uh, from textiles and my understanding of colour at that time. So, yeah, it's all all crazy, really. And it's interesting to listen to you talk just now about when you're doing textiles, the idea is, oh, you really should have done fine art. When Mm. you're doing fine art, you really should have done textiles. (laughs) And then you're talking about, you'd almost draw a line with your family history between Nigeria and the UK in a funny way. So your heart is essentially, you know, in both those practices. And what about your sense of your own identity are you a Nigerian living in London yeah a lot of the times I feel like I feel like I'm a Nigerian living in London because even in terms of certain aspects of British culture I feel like I'm still kind of assimilating certain things but I feel like for me right now it's starting to feel a bit more like okay yeah I could guess I could tell myself as a British Nigerian because people say oh you're like British Nigerian I'm like no I'm not I just say that I'm just Nigerian (laughs) yeah yes I have a British passport I just consider myself Nigerian but I feel like as I get older even with like my current relationship I'm like okay yeah I got I guess I'm starting to become more 
this kind of dual identity but then i think when i think of british culture i'm thinking maybe more in terms of like black british culture as opposed to like white english culture not someone who'd go and sit in a pub or yeah certain aspects of the white british people yeah i'm not really (laughs) i know that's not what they all do but you know but yeah maybe in terms of more black british culture and this kind of diasporic experience right living in a different place but then also going to places like the british museum or some institution like the royal drawing school and then being introduced to things like the national gallery because i'd never been to the national gallery i'd been there like once or twice but i didn't really see you know the importance of something like the national gallery and why all these old masters were cool and all that kind of stuff so even for me in terms of visual language going to somewhere like the british the british museum and the national gallery has really affected how i create images because a lot of these compositional ideas are things I kind of learned while I was going to the National Gallery and looking, okay, how do you work with a composition or bordering or working in a triptych, diptych or different sort of visual systems? How do you lead the viewer's eye in an image? So a lot of these ideas I've learned from European artists. So when I'm making work now, there's this blend like, hey, I've got a book of El Greco over there. And that's like one of my favorite European paintings because I think he's just like amazing you know in terms of this visionary experience and i remember during my year at the journey i focused on william blake a lot he's interested in this personal mythology and then this non-physical space so in terms of identity i I would still regard myself as a nigerian living in england but i feel like with the work there's a blend of both cultures Mm. you know looking at my personal heritage and my history and then also my experiences here and all these new things I've been exposed to as a result of going to places like Central St. Martins and going to the drawing school and then teaching at the drawing school. The work is always psychological, right? So I feel... <laughs> what I'm saying physically is like, yeah, no, I'm, I still feel I'm Nigerian, but the work is telling me like, hey, look, you're, you're already blending these two different cultures together. Yeah, so it's very much opened up a lot of your ideas and introduced all sorts of new ways of thinking and looking Mm, uh, for you, as much as it's exposed all sorts of contradictions and hierarchies that, you know, are obviously extremely problematic. Mm. And the Royal Drawing School is very much part of who you are at the moment, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's quite there so much there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Because you're teaching there. Yeah, teaching at the moment. Yeah, I'm a faculty member and on the academic board, so I've been helping with curriculum planning and introducing sort of like new courses and all that kind of stuff. So what particular contribution do you feel that you are making or you have made? uh, So I mean, currently I did two courses which I helped to kind of come up with. One's mythology and art and the other's world imagery. So mythology and art, you know, it's right in the name. We're looking at mythology and looking at art practice and how some of these mythological themes are used in art and also how mythological themes have informed some of these visual systems in other cultures and then we're also in world imagery we're looking at visual cultures across the world you know looking at these commonalities between them or how certain ideas develop into other ideas so the previous week we looked at sequential narratives so we're looking at this idea of working in a sequence so we looked at things like a cylinder seals made in Sumeria so where you know you have a cylinder seal made out of a precious stone so it's a little circular stone which you roll out 
into a piece of wet clay, but it creates like a kind of sequence in terms of one thing follows on from the other. And then we were looking at things like woodblock prints in Japan, like ukiyo-e prints, and the limitations of woodblock printing because they wouldn't be able to create a long singular panel, so you'd have to work in a almost kind of like panel system. And then we look at how that then becomes things like comics or storyboarding in films. I can then introduce some of these ideas I'm interested in and then also new things into an institution like the drawing school and that opens up the language because one thing I thought when I went there was like there's so much of a focus on European conventions in image making. Now I've introduced, okay, mythology and art world imagery, we can look at some of these conventions outside of Europe but then still bring it back in like, hey, look, okay, there are relationships between what some of these European artists are doing and what we're doing in other countries, Africa, Asia. One of the world imagery courses, we looked at uh, costumes and dress and fabric in various cultures. So we were looking, there's this wild demand festival in parts of Europe where people dress up as kind of like animal with animal skins and looking at the purpose of why would we dress up in ritualistic dress. And then we looked at different festivals and ritual systems across the world. So I'm saying to students, so okay, we're all different people and all come from different places, but we all have this tradition of wanting to dress up with a mask and fabrics that adorn the body and changes the figure, and then you represent this deity or this nature spirit. It's an idea that persists no matter where you're from. God, that it's all amazing. Yeah, I mean, after connected. we do this recording, part of me is going to go and sign up for that. At the Royal <laughs> School. That doesn't even sound like something yeah. a place like the Royal Drawing School would yeah. even do. <laughs> I started with drawing. That was always mm. my weird, isolated kid obsession. Mm. But I eventually started looking at what is regarded as a mm. great drawing, yeah. and yeah. thought, I can't, I can't relate to this mm. sort of way of drawing. It wasn't really until I had kids and started watching all these Japanese anime that I thought, mm. okay, now I like drawing again. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I've just recently, in the last couple of years, started drawing again mm. for exactly that reason. Mm. And when you talk about the drawing school, almost like following this lineage of how things develop and change, mm. and I did speak to you about this earlier, I'm super interested in lineage in my own practice. I think, wow, that sounds mm. completely fascinating. Yeah, because I think, you know, we lose, like I was saying, you know, the, the debt of Europe in terms of modernism and how all these African artifacts influence the whole new generation of European artists who then went on to do Cubism, Surrealism, all these different things, and looking at the more symbolic aspect of image making so i'm not just kind of looking at it of like oh yeah you know drawing from a kind of european tradition i'm looking at drawing from like petroglyphs and like the nazca lines you know which are different animal motifs across a huge landscape that you can't really see unless you're high up and mark making you know early cave paintings to what we see as drawing today you know so i i think that idea is something that i kind of yeah teaching at the drawing school has really opened up because like you're saying as well this idea this is what an accomplished drawing is you know not to say that observation yes is still important and learning some of these fundamentals are important but kind of looking at drawing as a whole every culture has contributed to what we understand as drawing today we look at our apps on our phone before you had stone tablets now you have a glass tablet with all these little logograms inside of it so a similar kind of idea and methodology but that's taken from something that's quite ancient or even things like emojis you know emojis and that's what i was thinking you know you similar that. Yeah, yeah similar yeah. concepts and similar ideas so that's why even this idea of future past is interesting for me because the past is always informing the future 
I think just in general, we shouldn't kind of look at the past as being primitive in quotation marks, you know, because there are certain systems in the past which are more advanced than what we have today. You know, pyramids, for example, we still can't build them. We still don't know the technology behind how they would pull these large boulders and stones across miles and create these massive megalithic structures. So, so yeah, I think, you know, in many ways through teaching and maybe through the work I'm making is me trying to like encourage people like, hey, look, you know, there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff in the past, you know, <laughs> but then also that informs the future we're moving into, you know, like now we have Facebook in this whole metaverse space, you know, which is interesting because then also thinking about the bush of ghosts where you have all these different avatars or you have all these different beings in different forms like you have ghosts with eyes on their knees these kinds of things and then you look at this idea of this kind of metaverse space we're going to be creating these different avatars that look very different to the physical body you know so it almost becomes this technological bush of ghosts where you're going to encounter these different avatars because we are creating more non-physical spaces through digital technology that creates a whole new idea of how we then relate back to the physical spaces we're in yeah i feel like my mind is is like so many different places at once maybe because i'm dyslexic (laughs) it's trying to create all these different connections between things and yeah 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 and yet then in the work there's this sort of uh it's not quietly contemplative but there is such a stillness about the work in terms of sound not mm. not necessarily music as yeah. such but I can't it's interesting that you do say sound because I do think about sometimes like can you hear sound in an image you know I guess with a lot of the work there's this kind of meditative quality or like you said the stillness yeah, of but them they're, they're not quiet yeah they're you, not that, quiet that, that's why I'm a bit stuck on what sound is it because it's mm. almost like a mid audio sound mm. like a constancy so that's the meditative yeah so it sounds like looking into the future and the sort of challenges and possibilities of where you'd like to see your studio practice develop, it sounds like it's very much invested in the Royal Drawing School to me and what you can open up in that context. I'm enjoying teaching, but then I also know I want to spend a lot more time in the studio and have time to just make my own work. Uh, like you did in lockdown. Yeah, yeah. like I did in lockdown. But yeah, it's, it's something I'm still trying to balance out in terms of the, the kind of relationship between the two because I feel like teacher definitely feeds my practice, but then, you know, you need just time to kind of go into your own world and do your own thing. In terms of the work, I just want to keep scaling up. I feel like all the figures want to be bigger. Okay. So I think for me, right, I've got a commission next year, which is a mural commission, which will be quite a challenge. So I'm really excited for that because I feel that's going to just push me. So I think, yeah, scaling up right now and just more world building because I want to go into sculpture as well because I did make a few sculptures in my 2019 solo at Zablidovich collection. Maybe bringing back some textiles into it, maybe things that are a bit more like installation-y in my open studio when I was at the drawing school I used some of my old textile pieces and created like a little altar with this like purple slab and then I had the textile underneath and then had the effigies which was out of wax almost kind of like people coming into the space and acknowledging the effigies and then looking at the work so yeah then there's a lot more because i mean i only finished at the drawing school in 2017 so that's been three years of me really kind of practicing as a fine artist so i still feel like i have a long long way to go in terms of really developing my practice 
I've only just turned 30 and I feel like I haven't really done anything. <laughs> I still got oh a lot gosh, to do. Oh my gosh, Well, you've certainly got a busy, a very, very yeah. busy life ahead. And, um, and it's really good of you to take up your very precious studio time to talk to me today. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, no, I've had a lovely, lovely conversation. It's oh, great. good. There's so many more things I do want to know, but I am going to answer some of them by listening to the Compendium podcast, which mm. is on Spotify. And uh, I will also list the books that you've mentioned, and you've got a great collection of books here that you might put together a book list for me, and I'll put yeah. it on the, the podcast notes, as well as the exhibitions that you've got coming up. And for now, Richard Andenji, ahead there. Yeah. Thank you very much for talking to me today. Yes, yeah, thank you very much, Julian. We have a great, great conversation. I had a good time. Yeah, great stuff. It was good. Are you working today in the studio? Is that the rest Yeah, I'll probably be here for a little bit and I'm going to go home. Thank you, listeners. And also thanks to the very talented Richard Ayodiji Ahede. Art Fiction's Culture Exchange is part of the UK-Australia season, which is a partnership between the British Council and the Australian Government's Department of Foreign Affairs. Guests for the series are artistic practitioners whose work is underpinned by geographical shifts, upheavals and reassessments of their cultural identity. The music for this self-produced abridged podcast was written and performed by Griffin Knight, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created the Art Fiction's logo. If you'd like to support the series please subscribe and rate and you're welcome to get in touch with me directly via my art fictions underscore podcast instagram or my website gilliannipe.com happy reading and art viewing till next time